Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. Today, we give you a speech from Convention of State's endorser, Chuck Cooper. As a constitutional attorney, Cooper was a member of the Reagan administration and served as a longtime litigator on behalf of the NRA. This recording is from the 2019 COS Leadership Summit. Enjoy. So right now I'm going to introduce somebody that I haven't personally known for a very long time. He's somebody who is in the legal community, a legend in the United States of America. There are few lawyers who reach the pantheon of lawyers who've argued at the Supreme Court and who are widely known and respected by their peers at the national level, at that level of constitutional litigation. It, it is rarefied air. Uh, I mean, I've been there, I've stood inside the Supreme Court, just being there is sort of an incredible experience to see what goes on and to know that that's the highest court in the land. Maybe a little too high at this point, would you say? Um, and so to, to sit with a lawyer like this and to hear his experience has been an incredible learning experience for me. And uh, Chuck Cooper has that lifetime of experience. Chuck uh, clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist. He worked in the Justice Department in the Reagan uh, era. Incredible experience. Obviously, Mark Levin was there, Hugh Hewitt was there, and many others that are uh, among the greatest heroes of the conservative movement today. I think uh, one of the most important things that he's done in his career that is so important is that he's fought for something that all of us hold near and dear, which is the preservation of and an attempt to expand back to its original meaning, the Second Amendment. That's important to us, right? Yeah. Without a strong and robust Second Amendment, everything else is at risk. The entire Bill of Rights, frankly, the whole country, the founders knew that this was the foundation for a free society, right? Men disarmed are men enslaved. And Chuck has dedicated his entire career, his life, to protecting and expanding our rights under the Second Amendment. Not expanding them, but making sure we get those that were given to us endowed by our Creator. It's a, not been an easy fight for most of the career. You guys probably know things have gone better in the last few years uh, under Heller and other interpretations issued by the Supreme Court. And so it's incredible to, to be with a guy that was at the center of all this. I told you that it's important that you get to know people who work with us as people, not just as public figures. We can watch them on TV, uh, we can read what they write, and we get the, the public figure side of things. I first met Chuck in a meeting, we'll discuss this meeting a while from now, I met Chuck in a meeting at the Jefferson Hotel in Washington, D.C. in a paneled conference room filled with luminaries that made me feel like a little leaguer among MVPs. And Chuck was there. And I think one of the most amazing things to see is how everybody else related to him. Because my impression was on this very first meeting that he had the respect of all these other luminaries, people who were his peers yet looked up to him in a certain way. He had a gravitas of few lawyers that I've seen. I've also seen another side of him which is really impressive uh, for attorneys especially, and I say this as an attorney, is there is an arrogance that permeates the profession. You might have noticed. <laughs> He's not one of them. The man carries himself with grace and humility that is befitting to this organization and the way we do business, and it is an honor and a privilege to introduce my friend, a supporter of Convention of States, Chuck Cooper.
Well, uh, Mark, uh, thank you very, very much for those kind words, and thank you for that warm welcome. It uh, sounds to me like I'm among friends. Um, but this is my first time uh, being with, uh, with this group. Uh, it's a great privilege and honor, but uh, I want to get a little bit better acquainted, uh, you know. These days, you don't always know what you can say and what you can't say uh, you know, in any, any crowd. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, but it, Mark, with your permission and, and with yours, I'd like to ask you a couple of um, personal questions. So first, uh, are there any freedom-loving, any communist patriots in this room? This takes me back to my Reagan years. Wow, this is, okay, that's, okay, we're off to a good start here. Um, <laughs> do any of you cling to your Bibles and your guns? Okay, all right, all right, okay. And tradition, yes, indeed. Uh, well, okay, I am with friends, I may speak freely. <laughs> and I wanna speak uh, about the real threat to the Second Amendment, because it's certainly not a convention of the states. Um, and we're here to talk about convention of the states, that's our purpose, our, our common purpose here. That's, that it is what we are comrades in arms about. I'm sure it's, we, we, we are about many other things as well, but, but that's our common purpose here today. So I want to talk about that one singular method of the methods, that one singular method that the framers gave us to amend our Constitution, to make that document fit at age 40, even though, you know, it fit just fine at age 14 as we heard from Mr. Jefferson earlier today. So it's one of the three methods for amending our Constitution. Right? So I see some people kind of scratching their heads. Oh, oh my, oh my God, Chuck Cooper, he, 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 he doesn't know Article 5. Uh, Actually, there are two methods in Article 5, but there's another one. There's another one. I want to direct your attention to Article 3. Let me read it to you. The judges, both of the Supreme and Inferior Court, shall hold their offices during good behavior. That's the other method that the framers, it turns out, unintentionally created to amend our Constitution. It's not a legitimate method, but it's a method that is used very nearly every term of the Supreme Court. Um, and it's really that method that is the real threat to the Second Amendment. Uh, Uh, 
Now, as I elaborate on that point, I would ask you to indulge me to uh, take a stroll down my memory lane with me to give, give some a texture, I think, to, to my beliefs on this, on this point. Back in the 1980s, as Mark has mentioned, I spent the 80s, both terms of the Reagan years, serving President Reagan in the Department of Justice, the second term under Ed Meese, in what is called the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the principal office within the Justice Department giving constitutional advice to the president and to the entire uh, executive branch. And during that period, it was a time of great, uh, you know, conservative, philosophical ferment, particularly in the legal profession and constitutional movement. We were filled, I was a young man then, and we were filled with all kinds of energy and, uh, and all kinds of uh, hopes, um, many, many of which were fulfilled. But it was also a time when there was a lot of scholarly efforts in the 80s and then in the 90s, uh, over what the Second Amendment means, what it means, and because of, you know, our right to keep and bear arms was then, as it has been ever since, under a great deal of stress, under a lot of uh, challenge from the left. And uh, when I left the Reagan administration, went into private practice, I joined an then existing group of Second Amendment scholars, academics, as well as practitioners, because my very first client when I left the uh, uh, government was the NRA. And for, for, as, as a private lawyer uh, advocating cases, constitutional cases, not just Second Amendment, but a variety of cases uh, on behalf of the National Rifle Association, I became part of this group. We were trying to develop a strategy, a intellectual and litigation strategy to ensure that when the Supreme Court took up the issue of what does the Second Amendment mean, believe it or not, it had not done so, at least not uh, in, a, in, a, in a fundamental sense, uh, during the 200 years uh, that had preceded. And we wanted to make sure that the Supreme Court ruled that it protects an individual right of all of us to keep and bear arms for armed self-defense. Uh, and it, at the time, our litigation strategy was very easy. We've got to keep this issue away from the courts. And while we are doing that as, as uh, intelligently and as energetically as we can, we have to develop the, 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 the scholarly foundations to uh, assist in the effort to persuade the Supreme Court to interpret that amendment according to its original public meaning. And that scholarship really got underway by some of the giants in constitutional law generally, but certainly in the Second Amendment. Nelson Lund, Stephen Hallbrook, Bob Cottrell, uh, 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 the, the, the list goes on. Uh, Koppel. Um, they, uh, they were, uh, Don Cates wrote the original, uh, one, of, one of the original pieces on this in Michigan Law Review. It's just a real strong, organized effort, organized under the auspices and the sponsorship of the National Rifle Association. God bless it. Um, and then, suddenly, in 1999, 
a case was decided in a Texas federal district court called Emerson. A federal district court judge in that Texas courtroom ruled that the provision of federal law criminalizing the possession of a gun if you're under a domestic restraining order is unconstitutional. It's invalid under the Second Amendment. Well, that was a, a really very surprising welcome ruling by this court because the court held that it is an individual right that protects every citizen. Uh, but it was also an alarming one because now the game was on. It was very clear that the United States, which was defending the constitutionality of a federal statute, was going to appeal that ruling to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And so everybody on both sides who cared about this issue formed their teams, and the NRA and I and Nelson Lund and uh, others Wayne, under Wayne LaPierre's uh, extraordinary leadership. Uh, uh, formed the amicus uh, contingents, if you will, to try to influence correctly this decision. We tried to, and we thought, well, okay, how can we be most effective? And one of the ways we thought we might be able to, we could, if we could get a, a state, a state to come in as an amicus, maybe more than one state, but if we could just get one state. And so I approached an old friend, Bill Pryor, the Attorney General of Alabama, now one of the finest federal judges in the country, uh, on the 11th Circuit. And he said, okay, we'll put in an amicus brief. And Nelson Lund, Professor Nelson Lund, and I put, and my colleagues put together a very extensive historical understanding, uh, uh, disc um, discussion, bringing forward all the evidence, the real meaning of the Second Amendment. Then we said, well, may, we're worried because there's a public defender who's going to be arguing this case. A public defender for this man who would, had been uh, prosecuted. Is there any chance that the court might let someone else argue as well? So we took a chance and filed a motion asking if I could argue on behalf of the state of Alabama in this case. And to our great surprise, they allowed me to do it. So I argued that case alongside the public defender, and a few months later, this, the Fifth Circuit came out two to one in favor of an individual right to keep and bear arms. It was a seismic moment. This was in 2001, fully seven years before Heller uh, came down, 2001. So it was a tremendous moment. The, the opinion is unbelievable. 70-something pages of dense uh, uh, historical uh, discussion about the meaning of the Second Amendment as it was intended by the framers and the ratifiers. Well, uh, then we started holding our breath because we were worried the Supreme Court was going to take the case. And the votes pretty clearly weren't there. Uh, but... Supreme Court didn't take the case, so we had dodged a bullet, and we actually came out with a strong, strong ruling. So it, it worked out uh, very, very well. A couple of years later, we heard through circles, these circles are small, <laughs> that uh, a couple of very young lawyers were preparing a challenge to the District of Columbia's effective ban on firearms. It has a sweeping ban, and they were preparing a constitutional Second Amendment challenge to that. 
Well, uh, that alarmed us in this group. It would be a challenge that was well-funded. It would be a challenge that was well-considered. It was under the sponsorship of a libertarian organization called the Cato Institute uh, in Washington. And, uh, but it was just not coming at the right time in our view. So this group got together and decided, well, we're going to send a couple of ambassadors to speak to them and try to discuss whether this is the right moment, this is a wise course uh, at this time. And so, once again, Nelson Lund and I teamed up and became those ambassadors. We approached uh, those lawyers and we said, gentlemen, let's count, let's count up here. You're going to go in with four votes against you. Paul, John Paul Stevens, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, Stephen Breyer, and Justice Souter. Those are certain votes against you. You're gonna go in there with three votes, three votes in our favor. Rehnquist, a man who I had clerked for, Justice Scalia, of course, and Justice Clarence Thomas. That leaves Kennedy and O'Connor. Now, I'd be, I might at that time be willing to take the risk on Kennedy but I was not willing, and none of us were willing to take the risk on O'Connor. And we had particularly a persuasive, I think, credible advocate with me because Lund had clerked for O'Connor. So he, he, had, he knew something about what he was talking about. Uh, but they decided to file the case anyway, and then once again the game was on. And we... Since the train was leaving, we all jumped on it. Uh, uh, and the case, sure enough, did get to the Supreme Court in 2007. But something momentous had happened in 2006. John O'Connor got sick. In tragic situation. And Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, bless her heart, left the court to tend to her husband. And a fellow named Sam Alito was nominated and confirmed to take his place. Now, Sam Alito was the first person I hired when I went to become the head of the Office of Legal Counsel. So he had been my deputy for two years. And I think I knew his mind. <laughs> So, so suddenly, the guys who moved this case forward, Alan Gura in particular, he should, be not, he should be noted here, were geniuses. And I was the stupid guy. <laughs> and I completely admitted it. And the case came out five to four. As you know, the Heller case came out five to four. Uh, but that's really my point here that the case came out five to four. Four members of that court believed then, and there are four members of that court who believe today that the Second Amendment does not, it is not an individual right, let alone a fundamental right, that applies as well against the states, which the Supreme Court held in the McDonald case shortly after Heller. 
They believe it is not an individual right, and therefore that Congress and the states are free to restrict your right, even to ban the private ownership of firearms. So there, there are four members of the court right now to do that. Uh, now, just to, I guess, maybe bring the peril of the Second Amendment from this threat into, into contemporary, maybe sharper focus. What's happened during the decade since the Heller decision and the McDonald decision were decided? Well, the follow-on Second Amendment cases have received a very hostile reception in the federal courts, the lower federal courts. We've learned from them, for example, that this, from the majority of them, two of them have, have done the right thing. Uh, I'll come back to. But we've learned from the majority of those courts that the Second Amendment does not apply beyond the facts, the specific facts of the Heller case, i.e., the right to possess for self-defense within the four walls of your home. You cannot take it out of your home. You have no right to do that. The, the states can ban you from carrying a gun. A, a proposition that on its face is ludicrous. It's simply ludicrous. I mean, it, after all, it says the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Not, not to keep in your home, to keep and bear. And as Clarence Thomas said in a case actually in which he was urging the court to accept another case that would straighten this point out unsuccessfully. Um, he said, it's extremely improbable that the framers thought that the Second Amendment meant you were free to carry your gun from the bedroom to the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, yeah most, most courts have ruled that way. Two of them have, have ruled the correct way, and because of that split among the circuits, thankfully, and I have to say, notwithstanding your compliment of my humility, that uh, both of those circuits did uh, in cases in which we represented the, uh, uh, the uh, party. Uh, but, but that division in the circuits uh, is why now the Supreme Court has taken, and there is pending now, a case that brings that question, whether or not you have a right to bear arms outside of your home for personal self-defense is before the Supreme Court, and we're cautiously, cautiously optimistic in terms of how that case uh, will come out. Uh, but the point is, we know one thing going into that case, there are gonna be four votes against it. We know there are gonna be four votes against it. We think and hope and pray there'll be five votes in favor of the original public meaning, uh, which makes, is made clear in the text of the words themselves, of, of uh, the original public meaning of the, of the Second Amendment. But it remains to be seen, and I won't uh, you know, stop holding my breath until the decision actually, actually comes down. But we are here because the framers equipped us and placed in our hands the means to ensure 
that the Second Amendment means what it says. We have within our authority, the people have, to address the mistake that the framers made when they vested the Supreme Court justices with life tenure. It's that which liberated the Supreme Court members not just to be independent, a good thing, but to be completely, wholly, utterly unaccountable. Wholly unaccountable. Now, to paraphrase Hamilton, few things are less pleasing than to call attention to an occasion when the founders made a mistake, but they made a mistake with that. They, they, they couldn't have foreseen that, that judges would, be, would exercise will, something that Hamilton assured us they, they wouldn't do, they would only exercise judgment. They couldn't have foreseen that the power they placed in the Congress to address these problems, the impeachment power would be nothing more than a scarecrow, as Mr. Jefferson said. They couldn't have foreseen that those protections would be inadequate and that ours would become a government of men and not law because of that provision. But I believe that that provision is the reason that the, that, that, that the real threat to the Second Amendment, and, and not just the Second Amendment, but to every freedom we hold dear, every freedom we have. I mean, in 1868, July of 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, who among them who participated in that, in fact, who in the entire country at that time would have guessed, would have thought that, what, that the meaning of the Equal Protection Clause would be that a state was disabled from defining marriage as one man and one woman? Who would have thought that? Who would, who would have dreamed such a thing as that? Because there would not have been a single person alive in the United States of America who would have done anything other than laugh at that preposterous notion. Whether you favor that practice or whether you oppose it as a policy or a moral matter, one thing's for sure. Our Constitution didn't decide it. For, it didn't vest five members of the Supreme Court to decide that. This is, what, this is what we have. And it's because, I believe, of life tenure. So look at Mark Levin's proposed amendments with, with care, but look especially at the one that addresses the life tenure of Supreme Court justices. Thank you.
We're going to go back kind of in your history, and why don't you tell us kind of how you grew up, where you grew up, how'd you end up being a conservative, and then ultimately, how'd you get into the law? <laughs> how'd I end up being a conservative? Well, you put me in mind of the famous words of Lady Gaga. <laughs> Now I gotta say, that's unexpected. <laughs> I was born this way. <laughs> now, I, I didn't know that I was conservative, instinctively, inherently, I guess, DNA-driven conservative. On, you know, until really, I guess I got to college and political issues swirling around. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Alabama. And, and where'd I, you go to college? Alabama, the University of Alabama. Roll Tide. <laughs> I knew that would make some people happy. Uh, both college and law school. And so I didn't, that's when I, you know, started becoming alive to political issues and, and, and basically hearing the things that I was hearing from my professors and, and some of my classmates, and said, this is crazy, this is crazy talk. Um, Do you remember what the issues were that you were, that, that people were talking about that, that made you feel that way at the time? No, uh, not any particular specific ones, Mark, uh, that, that, that come to mind. Uh, just, to, you know, every, every damn thing that was... <laughs> Same stuff they're talking about yeah, now, only maybe really, a little crazier. Yeah, really, it's that's true. But you know, the the environment was uh, was different then. We at least, for example, seemed to be able to agree on things like pronouns. <laughs> Very difficult now. <laughs> I apologize, I didn't ask you your preferred pronouns, Chuck. <laughs> you know, I, I'm really blessed. I have a daughter at Hillsdale College and a son who just started Scalia Law, so they're not worried about pronouns either. Thank goodness. But you're not running any risks here, Mark, I promise you, with me. So, um, you know, throughout your career, I talked a little bit about your career. You ultimately ended up being known as one of the top Second Amendment attorneys in the country. First, how did you end up specializing in constitutional law, and then how did you end up specifically in this area of the Second Amendment? Okay, well, I, I was blessed, uncommonly blessed, to have clerked for Justice William Rehnquist. Now, that, that was a, a pivotal, you know, kind of... Everything changed for me after that, to say the least. And for a graduate of the University of Alabama Law School to have clerked there was, it was actually, it hadn't happened before or since. But, so it, just a lightning bolt struck me. And, um, and in fact, to the extent that after I was there and I'd served him along with co-clerks, you know, uh, Rhodes Scholars and everything else. Uh, and I started looking through the resumes of people who wanted to clerk the next year. I thought, oh my God, how did I get here? How did I get here? 
And so I still I marvel at it. But it, but that it, learning so much at his side, working as a law clerk uh, to Rehnquist, it really opened my eyes to a lot of things. First, loving. I, 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 as I say, being conservative was in my DNA, so, and he was the only conservative at the court in, in OT 78, October term 1978. Uh, the only conservative there, so my dream had come true in every possible respect. But I learned so much more about the Constitution. I learned about federalism. He was a federalism. Uh, he was the, he was so much. And, uh, and I, but I also learned firsthand and became very disillusioned firsthand as a young 20-something recent law graduate that the Supreme Court has the power to be a government of men and it will exercise that power. It will exercise it. It was a case called Weber, and it was an affirmative action case. And they upheld discrimination in that case, a statutory case, not constitutional, but, but in that case they upheld discrimination on the basis of race, notwithstanding the clearest possible language and the clearest possible legislative history of that language that could possibly be written. Uh, as disclosed in a lengthy dissent authored by Justice Rehnquist, I commend it to you. So I left knowing that five justices basically agreed on what they knew to be a lie. They knew it. And that's colored everything, it's colored my life really ever, ever, ever since. I went, I, I Returned to the South, to Atlanta. Uh, didn't realize how much I loved Washington. I know that's <laughs> But loved the things that are only in Washington to the degree that they are, government, public policy, constitutional issues. And so I got involved in Reagan <laughs> campaign and sent my resume uh, into the Department of Justice when lightning struck and he was, uh, he was uh, elected. And uh, one day in my office, I had a call message from some guy named Ken Starr. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I went, I went up and, and uh, was privileged to then start working at the Department of Justice. Now, how did, I, how did I get focused on the Second Amendment? Yeah. Well, after I left the government, after both terms, you know, I was like every other lawyer coming out of government. Uh, you know, I was just staring at my phone. Uh, <laughs> uh, did corporate America not hear about me yet? <laughs> what? what did they not get the, get the announcement? Uh, the phone, is this thing going to start ringing? Anyway, the first time it rang, the voice at the other end was Wayne LaPierre's. Wayne LaPierre. And from that moment on, uh, I represented the NRA in just a whole lot of things. Not little things, but the big things. 
And um, it was 30 years of, uh, of uh, you know, being comrades in arms. And, and the Second Amendment, of course, I had always believed in the Second Amendment, but even more than that, I believe in law. I believe in the law. Uh, so, uh, we're, we're running a little short on time. If you guys would indulge me, we're gonna run a couple minutes over. Is that okay, guys? All right. Um, there are a couple of questions I wanna ask you, uh, two specifically. One is, you and I met at a meeting at the Jefferson Hotel, and uh, that goes back five years or so. Could you describe that meeting from your perspective and, and what happened there? Yes. Yes, at the Jefferson Hotel, we were called together. I believe it was Mike Ferris who organized it. I think it was actually uh, the Federal Society. Mike, Mike had asked for help, and okay. I think it was Eugene and, okay. and those guys, Jonathan Bunch over there. Were the All right, there. well, I, I associated you might Mike have gotten the call directly yeah. from Mike. Yeah. In any event, they, they gathered together, uh, you know, like a dozen or so, a dozen or 15 like-minded conservative lawyers, you know, believers in, uh, in the law. Uh, and uh, I was privileged to be there and honored to be asked to, to come, and it was for the explicit purpose to talk about the Article V Amendment process and the Convention of States method. Something that Mike Ferris knew, as did the FedSoc people, because I'd, I'd been on this for a long time, had FedSoc conventions, that I, I, I had long advocated what I have here today constitutional amendment to address the Supreme Court's life tenure. Now, I testified in Congress in favor of the balanced budget amendment earlier in my career. So, so uh, amending the Constitution was not something that, you know, I was scared of. Uh, and at that meeting were people like, uh, like uh, Robbie George, you, uh, and Levin. Uh, I'm sorry? Mark Levin. Mark Levin, of course, Mark. Great one. Uh, and truly, truly is. He was then, too. And remember, he was chief of staff to Ed Meese. And say, okay. What are we going to talk about here? <laughs> okay, Chuck, what do you think? Go. <laughs> Very good. But Nelson Lund, uh, you know, I did, there, there, were, there were some, uh, Ambassador Boyden Gray, uh, geez, uh, there was a number of people, Leonard Leo. Yep. Uh, and anyway, we, ca we came together to discuss somehow bringing life to the Convention of States method and to oppose uh, uh, and to form a, you know, a, a organization to answer the arguments being advanced by conservatives who opposed the ideas of the Convention of the States. 
And so I have to say, Mark, you know, I've been to a lot of those lunches. And usually you get a free meal out of it, and that's about <laughs> it. This, look at this. Look at this. This is simply unbelievable. I have never, ever been at one of those lunches that ultimately took root the way this has because of people like Mark and Patty, Mike Ferris. It's simply Senator Coburn, of course, gave a So I, 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 I would have bet probably my last dollar that something like this wouldn't have happened. So this is a miracle in progress right here. No question about it. It's unbelievable. So, so I go into this meeting and I got to give you my perspective. Literally, so these are legal giants in this meeting. Uh, I've never met Chuck before. I knew Mark Levin a little bit. Uh, certainly had never met Attorney General Meese. Uh, guys like uh, John Eastman and Nelson Lund, John and C. Eastman, Boyd and Gray, Rob Nadel, like these are giants, right? Nadelson, yeah, he's, yeah. he's the intellectual. You know. Yep, and I walk into this meeting literally feeling like a little leaguer at the Major League MVP lunch. <laughs> and uh, it's just extraordinary. And, and so Leonard, by the way, had warned me about these lunches. You've never attended one of these, Mark, but here's what happens. He said, you got you know, 10, 12 lawyers, lots of big thinkers, maybe some big egos in the room. There'll be 12 lawyers, 15 opinions. There'll be a lot of argument. Nobody will agree on anything. Don't be distressed if people are arguing about this. And <laughs> I can handle it, it's fine. And we go in there and uh, Rob makes his presentation. I think Mike Ferris said something, I said something. And then we wait for the fireworks, right? This is what Leonard tells me is going to happen. Everybody's gonna argue about it, right? And what happens is there's kind of silence afterwards, and I don't remember who it was, because it's all a blur to me, but somebody said, okay, what do we need to do to make this happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a miracle. And I remember we took a lunch break. I remember walking out and going to the restroom with Leonard, and I said, what in the hell just happened in there? <laughs> and Leonard said, I don't know. <laughs> and so that was kind of the start, and that's so, what we have on our legal advisory board with guys like Chuck on there and Mark and all these other people on the legal advisory board, something nobody else has. For me, what I can say is when people say, well, legally, you blah, 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 I just go, I don't know, look at our legal advisory board, right? What do I know? But all these guys know. So you guys have that. You have Chuck who has your back. You have all these other lawyers who have your back. You have the firepower of the legal advisory board because of that meeting that day, because of, of that conclave that day that led to all of this. It's really incredible. One last question, we're running behind, but it's, this is obviously super current. Uh, I got your permission to ask this question. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on at the NRI right now, and I'm really saddened by it. It's really frustrating to see. I don't think it's a good time for the country, for the NRI to be having trouble. They've been such an incredible force for good on so many fronts. Um, you've been inside. Can you give us your perspective on what's going on? I know there's stuff you can't say, but whatever you can. Yeah, there, there really isn't much I can say. Uh, I, I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer to the NRA, uh, or at least I have been until yesterday. Yesterday. 
So talk about timing. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I got a very interesting email from Chuck yesterday. <laughs> um, and but but and and as a lawyer, I have a duty, unbreakable duty of of uh, uh, maintaining confidences of of the things that I know, even for former clients. But but if you have, you know, Wayne LaPierre, people like Wayne LaPierre, again, uh, I love Wayne LaPierre. And I've been in battles with for 30 years. But people like Wayne and, and Oliver North, who I also go back with even farther, with a rockier beginning. But uh, for those of you who remember Iran Contra, oh, yeah. I, I was the witness in that congressional hearing before him. He, I didn't have a stack of telegrams on the table that high, though. Uh, uh, but figures like that in our movement, in the, in the Second Amendment movement, Chris Cox, you know, leaving, and now, uh, and now uh, others, me. Uh, there's, the NRA is in turmoil. It's in turmoil. It's in a rough, rough patch. I am confident that it's going to come out of it and get its feet back under it and uh, be everything in, in due time that it has been and mean everything that it is, has meant. But it's, it is truly an indispensable, in my opinion, indispensable organization. So I'm going to say uh, one last thing and, and we'll close with that, which is... Uh, and this is really important what Chuck's talking about here, and it concerns me a lot in the conservative movement generally. When, when we have giants in the movement that are having difficulties among each other, it's not good for any of us, right? I'm very personally worried about what's going on with the NRA because of its effect on the country. Uh, I think it's been an organization without parallel in its field. Uh, we, we have the situation, we have the, the improved situation regarding the Second Amendment largely because of the NRA because of the muscle of the NRA, the political acumen of the NRA, the skill set, their willingness to go into battle. So when organizations like that struggle, it's not good for any of us. And we see this, and I think this is really important in the conservative movement, we see this, you'll see rival organizations, they'll point fingers, they'll clap and smile about it. We should never participate in that, right? Ever. In the field of the Second Amendment or any other field, right? We wish our competitors who share our values, uh, when there are competitors who share our values, we wish them the best, and we always pray for them. Uh, and I would close this session, Chuck, just by asking all of you to keep the NRA and all those icons in your prayers as they work their way through this difficult here, here, stuff. Here, here, here. Thanks, Chuck. God Thank bless you. you for being here. Thank you. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.